From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. If Democrats are going to get the kind of moral and national rejection of Trumpism that they want, they need those people not just to stay home, but to actively reject that wing of the party and embrace Democrats. And I think that anything short of that, you'll see Trumpism persist. That's Ested Herndon. He's a national political reporter for The New York Times. He's also the host of a new podcast, The Run-Up, which looks ahead to November's midterm elections, largely through the voice of the voters themselves. It's a style that Herndon honed on the campaign trail in 2020, when he became known for his on-the-ground reporting in swing states. Herndon has developed a kind of taxonomy of the midterm electorate. We discuss the kinds of voters that the Democrats must persuade in order to keep their majority in Congress. Plus, a topic near and dear to my heart, the value of podcasting and how it is different from print journalism. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS, we are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Leslie who asks, are DOJ's grand jury subpoenas a significant escalation of DOJ's investigation into January 6th? And my answer, in short, is you bet. It's a very significant escalation. Leslie, of course, is talking about the reporting from Monday in the New York Times that said that up to 40 subpoenas have been issued to people in and around Donald Trump's orbit with respect to what happened on January 6th and the effort to overturn the results of the election. So we know a few things from that. One, the DOJ is very, very serious about talking to a broad array of folks. They are going to repeat some of the work of the January 6th committee because they have their own independent standards and thresholds and elements that they have to prove if they're going to charge anyone with a crime. And they can't rely only on the deposition transcripts of testimony given before the January 6th committee with respect to all these people. I'm assuming almost all of them, uh, if not all of them, are duplicates of witnesses who have already testified and given information and documents to the January 6th committee. We know also that their sights must be squarely set, not just on the people whose testimony they're seeking, but on Donald Trump himself. You don't talk to that many people who were aides of a sitting president at the time 
without also having squarely in your sights the former president himself. I think that's common sense. We also know how broad the scope of the subpoena is. The New York Times reports that they obtained a copy of one of the subpoenas, at least, which asked for, among other things, any records or communications from people who organized, spoke at, or provided security for Mr. Trump's rally at the Ellipse. And it also asks for information about any members of the executive and legislative branches who may have taken part in planning or executing the rally, or, and this is important, try to obstruct, influence, impede, or delay the certification of the presidential election. That's basically everything that the 1-6 committee is looking at. And now we know DOJ is squarely looking at that as well. What's interesting that we don't know precisely is which statutory violations they think are relevant here and are implicated by these subpoenas. You'll recall that there was a lot of debate and discussion about which statutes were implicated in the search at Mar-a-Lago. And certain documentation that gets filed denotes the statutes on their face. We now know what those statutes are. Here, even though it's also true that a subpoena requires the listing of particular statutes whose violations are being investigated by the grand jury, the Times report, at least, doesn't indicate which statutes those are. But the language of obstruct, influence, impede, or delay, the certification suggests that they're looking at some of the statutes that I and others have been talking about for some time, including the obstruction of an official proceeding. Unclear whether the subpoenas also mention and invoke seditious conspiracy. That would be interesting to know. The other thing that's not answered, and Joyce Vance and I talked about that a little bit on the Insider this week, is why now? It seems to a lot of people, I think reasonable people, that these 40 folks whose testimony is being sought, their testimony was relevant six, eight, 10 months ago. At some point, we may find out the reason for the delay, but the wide array of subpoenas issued now does not tell us the answer to that question. But yes, this is a very significant escalation done probably in advance of the 2022 election so they could get this flurry of activity over with. And then we'll see what happens and how people respond. And that leads me to the next question, which comes in a tweet from Ben, who writes, lots of grand jury subpoenas out this week. I've heard reporting of people saying they will refuse to testify. How does this refusal differ from what we've seen recently with congressional subpoenas? I have a sense this is different, but how does this differ? Hashtag AskPreet. Well, some of the same arguments might be made. You have seen in the past with respect to lots of different investigations that have been ongoing, both at the congressional level, the federal level, and the state level. People saying they have immunity of some sort, or there's executive privilege, or there's attorney-client privilege, and some people have invoked their Fifth Amendment privilege, constitutional privilege, against self-incrimination. You probably get a smattering of all of that here now, too. But the main difference, as we've said over time on this show, I'm sure again and again, between a congressional subpoena and a federal grand jury subpoena is the degree of enforcement that comes with it. With congressional subpoenas, we've seen it can be a battle between co-equal branches of government. The law is not particularly clear. The enforcement mechanism is weak because you don't really have, at least in the last hundred something odd years, a procedure by which someone from the congressional branch goes and actually holds someone in contempt by arresting them and putting them in sort of the House of Representatives jail. There's no process for that. There's no methodology for that. Not so when you're talking about a federal grand jury. Those subpoenas are enforceable in court. There can be fights about them. There'll be motions to quash those subpoenas. But if they fail or they are frivolous, people can go to prison. People can go to jail for not complying with the subpoena. And that is a much more swift process, clear process, 
in a process with tremendous amounts of precedent when you're talking about a federal grand jury subpoena. So that's a big difference and one that will make a difference in this case. We'll be right back with my conversation with Estead Herndon. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Ested Herndon has emerged as one of the country's leading political journalists in both print and audio. The 29-year-old reporter has also been a frequent guest host of the hit New York Times podcast, The Daily. He currently hosts The Run-Up, which debuted last week and explores the biggest factors animating November's midterm elections. Ested Herndon, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I had not appreciated, given all your wisdom and success, that you are 29 years old. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> yes, I am. I am. I am. We, I am, we uh, searched the FBI files and we came up with your age. <laughs> 29 and like, and like three, four, no, about a half. I turned um, March 31st. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 29. I'm enjoying my last few, my last few months of, of, tw- of the tw- <laughs> Of the 20s. So does being young provide benefits in re- your reporting and interviewing or not? Um, it depends. I think that there are two sides to that coin. I mean, I think that you have to know as a young person what you don't know and really be honest about that. The basic version of this is when I was a reporter at the Boston Globe, I had found this scandal that I was really excited about reporting on, but it was about housing prices. And I realized like, oh, I don't really know every full step. This is right after I got out of college of just basically buying a house. Right. And so and I, I teamed up with Patty Wynn, who was a reporter there, to do this series about these set of housing scams. But that's just a low level example of, I think, something that you have to be really um, clear with yourself about is that there is going to be historical context, type of people to talk to and type of sourcing to do that you have not understood. And that I think it's actually been a real benefit working in newsrooms like The Globe and now The Times is that there is that institutional level uh, that you can lean on. I would also say, in terms of being younger, though, is that I have been less tied to like a vision of this is how things used to work. And I think that particularly in politics reporting right now, that's been a real benefit. It's like I'm not I don't think I'm weighed down by saying, oh, well, it can't be this way because it's always been this way. 
And in a time in which politics has been really upended, I kind of think I'm ready for that because I've only known this state, you know? Yeah. And are you, are you better at social media than the old guys? You know, we all do what we can do. <laughs> you know, like, I feel like it's funny. Like, I had a Twitter in high school, you know? Like, I have been tweeting about foolishness, like, soccer and memes and jokes for a lot longer. You had a Twitter like, in high school. I had a Commodore 64 in high school. <laughs> I literally had a Twitter in high school. And it's funny because I've actually had to really... People are like, oh, like... You tweet such wild stuff on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, this is like the most calm I have ever been on social media, partially because I feel like that transition has had to happen. I've had to learn how to go from being like insert teenager on the line to being insert journalist online. But uh uh but that has been that was a transition. Do the do the New York Times overlords police the tweeting in any way? I would actually say that this way it's way less than I think perception might be. I mean, me and the times are aligned in that, like, I don't want to die for the tweets, you know? I don't think that's the place in which the best journalism is done. And I don't think that's the best place for nuance and political discussion. Yeah, I agree and with so that. I, and so I want, I think the benefit of working at an institution is I want my political kind of thoughts and reporting to be filtered through editors, to be brought forth in like a fact-checked way. So I'm like not trying to waste my best ideas or thoughts on Twitter but I think of it as like a kind of a water cooler for media, for for young folks, for, you know, friends and such. But I will tell you that in the last couple of years, I did make a burner Twitter because I just wanted to return the, to that high school experience of just being able to sit around and talk to my friends oh, so with no one seeing it. What's, and like, what's the handle of that account? Now, if I told you it, well, that wouldn't be a burner. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is friends only. <laughs> One of my proudest moments, and I don't know why this is so, when some journalist discovered that Mitt Romney yes, had a yes, burner Ashley Feinberg. Ashley I Feinberg. That. And he followed like not that many people, like a few hundred people. And I was one of those people. I don't know. I was very proud of that. So you're you're clearly wise beyond your years. And one reason may be how you were brought up and something that you said recently in an interview really struck me because I never heard this phrase before. You said, my father always stressed the importance of hard work and not skipping steps in your development. My, my father said the same, but he didn't use the saying that your dad did. You said your dad used to say, quote, no one goes to bed a blunder and wakes up a wonder, <laughs> yeah. end quote. Did he make that up? Does that, does that come from somewhere? And I don't that know if he made it up. He was actually in New York this week and repeated this phrase to me, I love just, it. To, just I love in it. case I didn't uh, remember. But, you know, my father's a pastor. And so, you know, pastors have just infinite amounts of these type of phrasing uh, uh, to drive the point home from the pulpit. And, you know, I grew up with those kind of lessons. But that was the one that I feel like always kind of stuck with me was that I felt as if, even as a young person, to your point that you're talking about, um, uh, that you needed to put in work, that you needed to do stuff. As a reporter, I need to go talk to people. I need to kind of do the, the, the necessary evidence building to be able to draw out full points. And so, like, for me, it's always a reminder to, to make sure that I am dotting some I's and crossing some T's and that, like, you can't, you can't just wish for that to happen. And I think particularly as a young person, particularly as a black person, particularly as someone who I don't think has like really expected um, uh, to be in this type of media position, I always try to make sure to remind myself of that.
So let's start talking about politics. Obviously, the midterms are coming up. You report on politics. We're going to be talking about politics uh, in the coming weeks as the whole country is, if and when they ever get past reporting on the queen and her <laughs> passing. And I, I will say no more comment beyond that um, because I don't want trouble. But, you know, in, in prior weeks, a couple of weeks ago, we had Mark Leibovich on, smart mm-hmm. guy. And we focused a lot on candidates and the people who are running and who's on the ballot. And you spent some time focusing on the other side of the coin, I guess if you, you, I guess you can say that, focusing on the voters. Yeah. And how you might, you know, assess them, categorize them. And, and you have a little bit of a taxonomy of, of voters who you said you'll be watching. And I, I found that very interesting. And I want to spend some time talking about these four different types of voters that you have articulated. The first one, so go, is that all right? Can we do that? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So the go first ahead. one you call, which is interesting, you say the skeptical Trump voter. What's the skeptical Trump voter? Yeah, yeah. This was this is a type of person we talked to in our reporting who is not skeptical of Donald Trump, which is a different type of voter, but because they believe Donald Trump so clearly, they're skeptical of the entire democratic system. They're skeptical of the political landscape. We are talking about people who believe that the election was stolen. We're talking about people who believe that voting is not secure and that Biden is not a duly elected president. Now, journalistically, we know that that is based in falsehood, wrapped in conspiracy, and not proven by any shred of evidence. But politically, we know that these people are there that they are real, and frankly, they are backing Republican candidates by the millions. And so the electoral question going forward is in a number of these races, this type of voter has not extended the fervor they have for Donald Trump to the candidates who are trying to be Donald Trump. So the the big example, the clearest one was probably in those Georgia Senate races right after the 2020 election. We saw a big drop-off between... Uh, uh, the type of energized Trump voter who came out for the president versus who didn't back Purdue and Leffler in those races. For Republicans to be successful here, at the baseline, they have to unify the most energetic and enthusiastic parts of their party. And that's going to require those Trump voters deciding to get behind the Republican uh, candidates writ large. And so we started there because that's probably within the easiest task for them to do. Before, the, before November, but it's still something they need to do nonetheless, is get that kind of Republican, get that kind of Trump voter who may not see themselves, um, who sees themselves in Trump, but not may necessarily everyone else, to still be excited for this election cycle, even though Trump is not on the ballot. So are, are the category people you refer to as the skeptical Trump voter, are they persuadable by independents or centrists or liberal Democrats? I have not seen much evidence of that. Because I think we have seen over and over that this crowd has become more entrenched um, and not kind of come to center, right? The traditional uh, 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 cadence we're used to in politics is after a loss, you know, there's some reflection by a party or by candidates or by some demographic. And then those messages shift kind of because of that reflection. We are now getting to the point where uh, 2018 Republicans experienced big losses, particularly in the House. 2020, you had Biden rise to power over 300 electoral votes. Uh, and still, that has not changed 
kind of Republican language in places like Arizona or in places like Wisconsin, right? In Arizona, you have a state drifting further, further away from Republicans, where Republicans are doubling down and tripling down on that Trumpism. And so I don't think we, I think if the answer to that was yes, and they were persuadable, we might have some evidence of that at this point. But we really don't. Right. You put them in a different category. So what so so these Trump voters, what happens to them and where do they gravitate to if Trump is not in? Well, one, I think we have seen the Republican primaries where they have gravitated to candidates that reflect his messaging, right? So you talk about the Kerry Lakes in Arizona, the Tim Michaels in Wisconsin, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. These are all candidates that have succeeded by becoming the Trumps of the midterm cycle, right? And so I think that that's where they are they are gravitating in the first place. But what they're basically doing is demanding that Republican candidates feed them that red meat, right? And they are holding out their votes, their enthusiasm, their activism until they see that happening. And so what, what the impact of that is, is they are drawing the Republican Party closer to them because they're basically saying, I'm not going to come out and not going to back you or not going to knock doors or not going to give money if you're not reflecting that I think the 2020 election was stolen. Or if you're not reflecting that I think, you know, the cultural issues that Trump says all the time. And so I think that that's the big impact is because they're skeptical. They're actually creating litmus tests that the party has to respond to. And that is how this um, and that is how this demographic is really having an imprint on the on, on the land. Yeah, is it possible that when Trump leaves and there's no Trump like candidate either running for president in the future or in a local congressional or Senate race or, or governor's race, that these Trump voters that you've described just stay home? I mean, that's possible, but I don't think that's likely. And it doesn't mean that I don't think it's likely they stay home. I just don't think it's likely we get a situation where there's not Trump or Trump-like candidates. Because the way the market, because, the political market, exactly, because there's a market for that. Yeah, is it's drawing in the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the country, and they're thinking, "What the hell? Why don't I run? I have no experience. <laughs> I don't have any right, expertise." Well, well, I think it's important for us to say that they're reflecting the, where the grassroots are among a lot of Republican voters. So it's not as if Marjorie Taylor Greene or Donald Trump or Kerry Lake is telling the population, this is what you should think, and that's what's happening. They're reflecting a population that is already thinking that, right? And so it's hard for me to think of a situation where we don't have those type of candidates, frankly, because there is a, um, at least in the Republican Party, a movement to ensure that those type of candidates continue. I don't know why this reminded me of something I saw on Twitter, which we were discussing. Um, somebody, somebody posted a tweet that said, I think the person who is ranked last in high school should also give a speech because I'd like to hear both sides. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, you know, I, I, I understand that. I think it's funny, but it's also not that they're it's far away. It's terrifying, right? maybe. I, look, maybe I'm an elitist. I don't know. No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, we can't act as if these people don't exist, right? Like, there was a, there were options that Republicans had in the primary to go a different direction. Right. There was a period of reflection after January 6th where, where, where a Republican establishment, some of them openly said we should we should cut out the swing of the party. 
that wing of the party persists because the people who back them are real and are not going anywhere. But but here's the dilemma, I think, based on two things you just said. One, you can't forget about them. You can't ignore them. But on the other hand, if it is true that they're not persuadable, shouldn't the Democrats just not bother with them? And maybe that's a reason why Joe Biden gave the speech he gave about MAGA Republicans. How do you square this idea of you can't ignore them, but you can't bring them to your side. So what do you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is interesting because, um, you know, Biden's been on the real transition on this very point, right? The original version of Joe Biden was talking about a Republican epiphany that would come after Donald Trump loses. And if there was going to be any moment for that Republican epiphany, or probably would have been after January 6th, right? I think what we now see is a Joe Biden that is reflecting that they are that this wing of Republicans is not as persuadable as he thought. Let me tell you a story. When I during the during the presidential campaign, I was one of a group of black reporters who Biden brought to DC for a round table. And we we all got we all he goes around the table and everyone could ask him one question. And this is like to to place of some time. I remember this is right when um like he had, he this is before Iowa. And I asked him, why would Republicans work with you when they didn't work with Barack Obama? And he said something to the effect of like, I'm popular among their voters and they can't ignore me. Right? Right. That was ridiculous at the time. (laughs) Right. And that was ridiculous right now. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And I think we are basically hearing a Joe Biden that has come to understand how ridiculous that was. He was not popular in Kentucky. He is not popular among base Republican voters. And he has now pitched a message to the rest of the country to unite against that crowd. And so, frankly, I think we square those things because it is not me who who has been updated their view with new information. I think it's Joe Biden who's the last to really learn that that what he was pitching as unity was coming from a crowd who did not want unity with him. Last question about this category, because we've got three other categories to get to. On the Trump voter, is it your sense or does the data suggest that the Trump voter category is expanding, contracting, or holding steady? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's there is some evidence it's contracting. Um, and I think that is clear in polling. I think that is clear in fundraising and i think like i think like that's clear in like you know uh uh the amount of people who are identifying as republicans you know joe biden benefited in 2020 from a sect of the party going over to the other side now what trump has done right is find new voters is find uh people who aren't typically participating in our elections and activate them to try to make up for that side There is not clear evidence that he can totally do that. There is totally, I do not want to downplay, like, for as much as Arizona has doubled down on Republicanism, we have seen those suburbs around around Phoenix and college-educated Republicans drift from Donald Trump consistently. So I do think there's evidence it's contracting. The problem for Joe Biden and for Democrats is that even a contracted wing of MAGAism is enough to take back the House, for example, is enough to win a lot of Sen- win some Senate seats, yeah. for example. 
And so even that contracted wing poses real threats, both for the Democratic Party and, I would say, for lower-D democracy, right? Because in Republicans' own words, that's something that they're targeting, you know, among candidates across the country. So I do think there is evidence that's contracting. We just don't have a system that's 51% driven. Did you see that polling? Just to interrupt the flow for a moment on the categories. There was an article, or, or maybe it was in your paper, the paper of record, but I'm not positive, about you know, warning people not to necessarily rely on polls that show the Senate race is going well. Yes. That the polling, yeah, what's that about and do you credit that? Yeah, yeah, that was um, Nate's newsletter today. I think it's really smart. I mean, it says that the places where Democrats are doing the best are in the some of the same states where there were the biggest polling misses um, in the last cycle. Right. Well, that's, I think that is, go ahead. That's worrying for, for Democrats. Certainly, and I think that's worth thinking about. I think that is worth baking into all of this analysis as we as we build up here. Donald Trump has found in two consistent presidential elections has defied polling particularly among non-college white voters, right? That could happen again, certainly. But even if that does not happen again, right? Even if polling let's say is right right now, that still probably leads you to a Republican House, which would still probably probably be driven by a Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates wing of the party that is pressuring Kevin McCarthy to be a political and legal thorn in Joe Biden's side. And so you have the situation where the polls are wrong and Democrats might have a cataclysmic problem. But you also have a situation where the polls are right. And I still don't think that's great news for Democrats because the House, as we said, uh, uh, can still lead to power what is a minority movement. Let's go to the second category. It's one that people talk about all the time, the young voter. We're always talking about the young voter. And the young voter never comes out to the degree that people hope and suggest and advocate for. Why is the young voter interesting to you as a separate block? Yeah, I think it's particularly because in this election cycle, Democrats, Joe Biden, has done what was on the top of a lot of young voter priority lists, you know, canceling student debt. Like, is universally polls well, is a top voter priority. And even though it did not go to the maximum amount that, you know, the Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warrens wanted, it's going to make very tangible change in a lot of people's lives uh, relatively quickly. And also with climate change action, another top priority for young people. I think that creates a situation where we could say the Democratic Party, maybe more than even folks might have presumed, has followed through on some young voter priorities. For Joe, for all of the problems that young people have with Joe Biden heading in uh, 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 to the 2020 election and during the primary, you know, this has been a president that has kind of centered those type of issues. What I'm, what I'm doing in trying to highlight that category is to see if he gets an electoral payoff for that, right? Can they change a midterms electorate to bring in some of those constituencies that usually come out in bigger numbers during the presidential race, young people, young people of color, et cetera, be driven by those historic actions, both on climate and on student debt? I think it's going to be an interesting question because as we talk to young people in our reporting, they're dealing with both sides of the coin. They think that Joe Biden has not stood up on a number of issues to the extent that they would they would desire, right? But they cannot, I think at this point, say that he's done nothing, right? And so 
the question will be whether those whether those agenda actions are motivating enough for young people, but also whether they take up that challenge he really gave to the country a couple weeks ago when he said, you know, no matter what problems you have with me, democracy is worth saving by itself. That's why tonight I'm asking our nation to come together, unite behind the single purpose of defending our democracy regardless of your ideology. I want to see if young people care about those agenda items, whether they care about democracy as Joe Biden articulates it, enough to really change the scope of this midterm electorate. I may have missed it, but one agenda item I don't think you mentioned with respect to this category of young voter was abortion. Is, is, that, is, that, a, is that a young voter issue or an older voter issue? I mean, I think it's across the board. I think we have seen... The certainly the biggest driver in terms of the change of democratic prospects in this year has been the immense backlash to the Dobbs decision. And I think that's across demographic groups. Mm-hmm. Um, on, um, on, the Democrat, seen, on, the, on the progressive side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I saw a good story from the Texas Tribune about young people driving registrations there. Um, you've certainly seen uh, uh, women uh, uh, come out in places like the Kansas referendum. You've seen in the special election in upstate New York, Democrats succeed kind of through centering, uh, protecting abortion rights uh, in this midterm. There's no question that that has improved um, some of that standing. And I do definitely think that that includes young people in that. But that's also because of Republicans' own actions here, right? Democrats find themselves now closer to the median voter because Republicans have staked out a position that is an outlier, right? You have a lot of Republican Senate and governor candidates talking about a personhood bill, talking about no exceptions to uh, uh, restricting abortion. That's not where the majority of voters are. And so in the post-Roe universe— you basically have created a situation where Democrats uh, uh, are the natural home for young voters, for women, for people, for folks who are upset at that ruling because Republicans have kind of ceded that ground. Let's get to the third category, the disillusioned Democrat. Now, who might they be? I think that this is someone who, you know, is a squishy Democrat. It's someone who agrees you know, this is a number of folks we have talked to who watched the January 6th hearings, who 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 listened to Joe Biden's speech and agrees that Republicans represent a threat to democracy, who 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 says the president is right in identifying Trump as someone who is out of the scope of American politics, what American politics should be. But they don't feel that great about where the Democrats have gone in other directions, right? They may not like uh, uh, where the Democrats have gone on gender, on LGBT rights, on the embrace of some Black Lives Matter language, right? Democrats have actually shifted where they were on a lot of cultural things. And so, so, the, so the disillusioned Democrats, they're the more, to, for want of a better term, the moderate ones, the more centrist ones? Totally. They're and disillusioned. I, think, mm-hmm, I, I think centrist is, you know, Everything has an equal and opposite reaction, right? Like, by Joe Biden doing things to fire up the base, to speak to his core constituencies, there's also people who who may speak a different language, right? And so I don't want to say that this is all moderate Democrats, right? There are certainly some moderate Democrats who are, who are um, looking at the economy and inflation numbers. There are certainly moderate Democrats who feel like, you know, you know, Joe Biden lost his skis when he canceled student debt, you know? There's, those people exist. What I'm saying is, 
we have talked to a number of moderate Democrats who actually think the Democrats are the better party in terms of fiscal responsibility. They are the better uh, uh, stewards of democracy. What they are uncomfortable with is the way the Democratic Party, particularly in the last five to seven years, have embraced a, a social language, a cultural language that they might not agree with. And so this type of voter is balancing that uncomfort with their agreement on the party on what they could be the bigger priorities. I would say that this is related to that type of skeptical Trump voter and that this is someone the Democrats should be able to bring home, right? This is the type of voter that they should be able to still vote for them come November, but it's important for their prospects that they do. But when you say these things about this group, the worry implied there is that they're going to stay home and the Democrats have to work to bring them to the polls. That they could stay home or they could be open to an individual Republican who hits Democrats on those message, right? That there are certainly Republicans who say, okay, yeah, I may, you may not like Donald Trump, but aren't you worried about this, like, about this quote-unquote wokeness of Democrats, right? So the, 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 the fear isn't just that they are that they stay home for Democrats. They go, this is they go also elsewhere. a place. They go elsewhere. Yeah, this is also a place where Republicans are trying to persuade swing and moderate voters, not on that economic front, not on that democracy front, but on the social issues, cultural warrior front. Now, is your sense of the disillusioned Democrat category is that mostly men? Is it mostly white men? I, I don't think it's. Mo I don't think we can say it's mostly white men. We. It is somewhat white men. We've seen Democrats deeply erode with particularly white men. But we have also seen Democrats erode with Hispanic men. And, We've seen and Democrats erode with black men. Yeah. We have seen Democrats erode with non-college voters across racial groups, right? So when I, I don't think this is just, there's certainly active discrimination that's involved in this, right? I am not trying to downplay the fact that some of these feelings are deeply tied to misogyny and sexism, are deeply tied to transphobia and homophobia. But I am also saying is that they're tied to classism, too. I mean, there are some people who just genuinely feel like the Democrats have adopted an academic language that doesn't speak to the top concerns of where a lot of working-class folks are, right? That in embracing a certain cultural language, that it just doesn't sound like the top issues that some of these people think about. So I'm saying that there is an active form of discrimination that's baked in here, but there's also something else where just the general embrace of a certain type of rhetoric creates a mismatch with the type of voter who that's not their top priority. And so both of those things could be happening in this category too. So for the disillusioned Democrats who have these qualities and attributes that you describe, does that militate in favor of Joe Biden returning to the ticket in 2024, putting aside age concerns. Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. that the guy who's going to keep the disillusioned Democrats uh, in in the House? I mean, that was the that was his pitch in 2020, yeah. right? It, that, will, that it work as all, will it work again? Mm -hmm. is, it, does it, is it still a good message or not? I think, I think it was a good... I think it's hard to know <laughs> because I think that was such a message that was tied to the immediate emergency that Democrats felt about Donald Trump's presidency, right? He was able to pitch that more clearly because Democrats were experiencing the day-to-day -day chaos of the Trump presidency. Um, I think that he will certainly try to position himself for that in 2024. But you have a Democratic Party that's kind of changed, right? There's more axes and recognition of kind of structural problems now. 
That was also because that candidate version of Joe Biden didn't embrace ending the filibuster, you know, didn't embrace expanding the court, didn't embrace, uh, uh, um, you know. And, and so I'm saying there, there is certainly, I, I think that there's just more room to play with going ahead where uh, 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 some of that argument of saying, well, it has to be me because I'm the only one that can bring these people home may not hit the same uh, in 2024 as it did in 2020. Okay, so now let's get to the fourth category, which I think is the most interesting. We've talked about the Trump voter. We've talked about the young voter. We've talked about the disillusioned Democrat. And now we get to the non-MAGA Republican. First, can I ask you, is it is it MAGA or MAGA? I go MAGA. <laughs> I always say MAGA, but Does you Webster's know, like... tell us? Do we know? <laughs> you know, I actually have... No, that's a great question. It's a real uh, GIF gift situation. <laughs> I don't know which one that is either. So I'm going to go with MAGA. So the non-MAGA Republican, that includes people like, very obviously, Liz Cheney, yeah. who got her butt kicked in the primary. Tell us about the non-MAGA Republican, whether that's contracting or expanding or staying the same. I mean, it's, it would be interesting if you said that both the Trump voter category is contracting and also the non-MAGA Republican category is contracting. So wh which is it? You know, I do think that we have some evidence that the Trump voter category is at least somewhat contracting. And I think we have some evidence that the non-MAGA R is somewhat expanding. But it is about the degree to which that is true, right? And I don't think the degree to which that is true... Okay, here's where I'll start. But I remember when the January 6th committees kicked off, right? Yeah. And the and the litmus test wasn't that... Um, and and, the, and the, there was a, a thought that was, you know, parties were telling reporters that this was going to change where Republicans were on that issue, that this could even save Liz Cheney's election race. That was always, I mean, speaking of always ridiculous, that is always ridiculous. <laughs> the non-MAGA portion of Republicans are not large enough in a state like Wyoming to save Liz Cheney. What they can do is if that group of people embraces Democrats, that is certainly a large enough population to help swing individual Senate races, yes, and maybe some individual House races in a general election. But um, in a Republican primary, Trump is still the preeminent and dominant force. We do not have adequate amounts of evidence, in my opinion, to know how this group has shifted from 2020 to now. I think that is the core question of this November election. Do we see these people cross over to back a Katie Hobbs in, in Arizona or back a Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin? Or... Is this more limited to to just staying home, or or skipping or, or or skipping that filling in that box and going into a different race? What Joe Biden is trying to do, per that speech in Philly, is bring these people to vote for Democrats to affirm and position a Democratic vote as an affirmation to save democracy that these people will agree with. I don't know if that's true. Well, I will say is it, it does seem true that they're skeptical of Donald Trump and particularly of a Donald Trump 2024 presidential announcement. We have not seen the same type of fervor for Trump to get in and the same type of polling fervor for him among the base that we saw four years ago. And do you have a reason for that? Is it because they're alarmed by the January 6th stuff? They're alarmed by the classification stuff? They're just tired 
of a carnival barker? Is it something else? Yeah, I mean, it's just hard to it's hard to fully know. I can tell you the people we talk to who kind of fit in this category, it was just general exhaustion. Fatigue. Um right? Yeah. It was yeah. just like, it was just like, okay, like if you're a Republican who hates Democrats, who like hates who thinks they're way too far to the left and wants someone who will stand up to him, to them. I mean, like, you've got other options to do that who aren't engulfed in multiple investigations, who aren't engulfed in, like, deep legal battles, and who do not have, like, a cascading piece of drama every day, right? Like, you, and so, like, some of that, and so some of what we heard was just people being like, you know, I'm open to the other options, you know? And then some, but, and then some of what we heard was a specific reaction to January 6th. I mean, we have talked to Republicans who have thought that was a step too far. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that wing is there. The question will be whether Democrats can bring them into their tent or whether this is a moment of skepticism that they end up putting aside. Like, let's remember, like, if you are a Republican governor, let's say Doug Ducey in, in Arizona, you didn't want Carrie Lake to win the primary, right? But you've come around to Carrie Lake as a general election candidate, specifically because you've just decided that the Democrat, the other team is worse, right? There is a risk here that these non-MAGA Republicans are currently in a, in, a, in, a, in a place of skepticism, but they make the calculation come November that they, 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 that they think the other side is worse. That, to me, is what, is, is what a lot of this election hinges on, is... If Democrats are going to get the kind of moral and national rejection of Trumpism that they want, they need those people not just to stay home, but to actively reject the, the, that wing of the party and embrace Democrats. I think that, and I, and, and I think that anything short of that, you'll see Trumpism persist. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Estead Herndon after this. Is it the non-MAGA Republican group that you mentioned? Are they open to Ron DeSantis? Totally. Or, or is it? But, but but doesn't he fashion himself a little bit after Trump? And and if you're saying that this fourth group is open to him, what about the Trump voter that we talked about first? How do they view yeah. DeSantis? And is it possible that DeSantis will be formidable enough because he's able to bridge together a coalition of both the Trump voter and also the non-MAGA Republicans? Yeah. I think DeSantis is an interesting test case because he is, you know, it's so hard to create a personal identity in the Republican Party right now because so much of the things that make you stand out have to butt up against Trump and that's going to ruin your brand in the party. What DeSantis has done very effectively is pick and choose issues, COVID, you know, taking on Disney in Florida, like cultural stuff that allow him to stand out that have made him a favorite of Fox News, that had positioned himself as like the Republican uh, 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 governor, anti-COVID governor, that allowed him to like make a brand, while at the same time not undercutting what is seen as, you know, the issues that Donald Trump cares the most about. But in my opinion, you can only play both sides of the coin for so long, right? And what the what a 2024 race would do is force DeSantis 
to frontally answer questions that he has avoided. Oh. Right? So, so he's, has, he's got to decide to be full-throated MAGA or not. He can't straddle? I don't think there's a full, that you can get away with full straddling in a primary. And so I think that you would, he would have to go at Trump. He would have to say there's a reason to move on. He would have to give Republican voters a permission system to move away from Trump. Mm-hmm. Now, that requires him reflecting some of Donald Trump's grievances, which he's already done. But the second piece of that will also require him indicting Trump in a way that he has not done yet. To me, these two things will come into a head. It just, they just haven't happened yet. The midterms version of Ron DeSantis can live alongside Trump's party, right? Because he's not, he's not doing anything actively to take away from him. The presidential version of Ron DeSantis would have to do that. And that's when these two groups will be pitted against one another. Can he create that bridge between the Trump voter and the non-MAGA Republican? I don't think we know that yet, because one of the things that could happen is that Trump voter, again, to our point about litmus test, creates uh, thresholds that you have to cross in order to be considered a true, authentic MAGA warrior, right? If you cross those thresholds, do you give away that non-MAGA Republican? That's a 2024 question, not a 2022 question. So... A category that you, at least in in this piece, didn't focus on, but a category that, you know, we're told every cycle is very important and it matters how they break, and that's the general independent. Do you have a sense from me reporting and talking to folks about how independents, generally speaking, will break? Because Biden has lost many of them. Yeah, I think this is where our, our polling, our Times polling, is probably the best use. I mean, right now we have seen Joe Biden... Um, He's still, he's not like killing it with independence, but he's not doing as bad as he was once doing. There was really a summer low point where both members of his own party and independents were really sour on him. Through a series of legislative accomplishments, gas prices going down, inflation tapering, all of those things I think matter. He has seen his standing somewhat improve with that. We have also seen independents, I think in the post-Roe universe, you know, this is not a group that agrees with the, the the position Republicans have staked out on abortion. And so Democrats have been able to win over independence through an issue being abortion, where they were previously losing some on, right? And so I think that there there is a slate. We do have a slate of issues and a, a political environment right now that has allowed Joe Biden and the Democratic Party to improve with that moderate swing voter, independent, whatever we want to call them. The problem is that that's just the snapshot picture, right? And we could get to a November where the playing field of voters' priorities has changed, where issues like education or crime and public safety or inflation rise back up to the charts in terms of voter priorities. And those are issues that Joe Biden does worse with independence on. Right now, he has a, he has a playing field that actually benefits his um his ability to have outreach with independents and the hope for Democrats in the White House will be that that lasts through November. By the way, so all this stuff that we're talking about in this analysis, could you describe for a minute how you go about doing the analysis, what the methodology is? Do you do you go to barbecues? Do you hang out at water coolers? Um, I don't know if anybody hangs out at water coolers anymore. Uh, is it a combination of polling, 
and focus groups. How do you how do you know the stuff that you know? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that you try to balance both individual reporting, like anecdotes, people on the ground with data. Because I think that both of those things have blind spots that the other side kind of couples together. And so in my reporting, I have often wanted to talk with enough uh, of the parties to know how they're thinking as one, how they view the electorate as one piece. Talk to enough voters and community leaders so you can kind of have a sense of what the blind spots of the establishment are as another piece. And then at the same time, I think it's important to see data and polling as ways to gut check what you think are those blind spots. Because talking to 10 people at a rally is not scientific, right? Talking to 10 people at a polling or or picnic or whatever is self-selecting. And so I think you also need the data to make sure that you are, well, you're reporting through lines are being borne out in something more scientific. But I really think the answer is and rather than or, because I think polling has its deep, real blind spots that we've come aware of, right? Anecdotal reporting may over-extrapolate from one individual person's story. And then if you rely on the parties to know stuff, you know, they blow elections all the time. So you'll reflect those things too. I think you have to do all the above. You know, William Goldman, the great screenwriter, once said, no one knows anything, really about anything. He was talking about movies, also true of politics. Totally, totally. I think that you have to talk to people who, 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 whose views on politics diverge so much that you are kind of stitching things together. Because I think that's the only way to really try to get a sense of what is a broad, diverse electorate where grassroots and establishments are thinking about not only different issues, but sometimes even the same issue, but vastly different. Now, when you identify yourself and your colleagues identify themselves as New York Times reporters, does that have a distorting effect on how people will speak to you? It does initially, but if you're good at your job, you can power through it, in my opinion. You know, like, I mean, like, I when I tell people I work for the New York Times, that eludes positive or negative responses. We are talking to a lot of different types of voters so that some of our mm-hmm. listeners get a sense of how people across the country are feeling. Okay, we can try it. I I don't read the Times. It's way too liberal for me. I'm not expecting a whole lot from this conversation, but I'll give it a shot, okay? <laughs> right, depending on where you are. Depending on where I am. But that's true generally. Like, I'm black. That elicits positive and negative responses. You know, like, I'm like... 29, as you said, that elicits positive and negative response. You know, like, I feel like all of those pieces all matter. And to me, what a good voter interview does is actually get past that initial thing. And so certainly when I'm talking to someone for the first time, I do think all of those kind of identities are coloring uh, uh, how they're doing that interaction. But I think if I sit with you for long enough or if I ask enough probing questions or if I do my side of this well, we'll get to a place that is accurately reflecting kind of where where you're coming to politics from. Well, you just were talking about reminded me of something, you know, kind of a searing anecdote in the book cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And one of the stories she tells, and it's, you know, it's shocking, I think, to many, many ears. She showed up somewhere to do an interview uh, I think with the proprietor of a business who refused to believe, and this is some years ago, who refused to believe that this black woman could actually be a reporter for the New York Times. 
that's how enmeshed the stereotyping and racism was. Have you ever had an experience like that? Oh, totally. I mean, I have had so many, I mean, people don't believe it. I've gotten, I've gotten N-words. I've gotten threats. I've gotten- This is talking to, this is when you're trying to talk to voters? Yeah. But I would like to say, like, I, I, I think it's actually really important here. Yeah. Like, being, the racism I experienced as a reporter has come from all sides. Right. Has come from and I don't want to flatten that. Like there is a particular energy, anti-hostile, anti-New York Times energy on the right. There is a particular uh, 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 viewpoint of where they think reporters, particularly black reporters, are coming from in those spaces, particularly at Trump rallies that I've done. But I will also say the presumption, the reducing I, well, you know, when when Democrats expect me as a black reporter to write a very specific narrative, I find that racism paternalistic also, you know? And so I feel like I've actually had experiences that have been across the spectrum. Here's a story I'll say it to this point. The day that Joe Biden was um, announced as the winner, I was in Mason, Texas, doing this story about how his, how his pitch for unity wasn't going to work, you know? And um, I went to church with this couple— this was one of the small rural counties that really came out for uh, for for Trump. I went to this church with this couple. I spent like this afternoon with them at their house, and they gave me a Christian devotional when I left. They like gave me lemonade uh, and told me how great of a time was. And in that interaction, they called black people the N word to my face. Right? Both of those things happen when you talk to people. They both say and do things that are objectionable and say and do things that are really kind. And I think actually a unique ex- a thing that I've really learned over the last five, six years is that a lot of people are capable of both of those things at once. And so it's, it's always interesting because I get all these questions about how is it to exist as a Black person in these spaces or how does it exist to the New York Times reporter in these spaces. But we have a lot of identities at once. And I think sometimes there are ways I relate to them as Midwesterners that I think I don't relate to an East Coast rally. You know, there's sometimes I relate to people as someone who grew up in a working class family that I don't relate to people who went to bougie schools and went to grow up with bougie families. So like I'm saying like I'm saying <laughs> I like haven't heard bougie, all of those. I haven't heard bougie in a while. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, <laughs> and so I'm saying all of those things to me matter. And so I don't think that there's just a straight line, even as certainly I have had similar experiences. I mean, I was in a restaurant in Pennsylvania and they kicked me out. Like I have, I've had crazy things happen. Kicked you out, kicked you out for what? They told me that um, we think it would be a good idea for you to leave. And I didn't ask follow-up questions as to why that was. So you, we could all, we could have, I have some guesses. But I actually don't know fully because I didn't stay around to figure out the why. <laughs> do, you, do you find yourself relating to me very deeply because we're both podcasters? <laughs> yeah, that's my <laughs> that's my newest identity that matters the most. <laughs> we're going to get to that before we go in in a, in a moment. Um, had but so you know, you you seem to have a decent perspective on this, and you know you're you're joking about it a little bit. Obviously, it's very. How, how do you? Have you adopted a strategy on how to deal with blatant racism when you're doing your job as a reporter? Um, I mean, the strategy, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I don't have an active strategy more so than I think that, like, before I was a reporter, I was a black man. And I experienced racism way before I was a reporter. 
And I think I'm used to it. I don't know. I don't really know. I don't really know how to say it other than like, I know how to navigate a racist country because I've done it every day. And so I think I've had unique experiences that have maybe prepared me for that. Uh, uh, I guess I've had to learn how to deal with those experiences as a Black reporter. But way before that, I just had to deal with those experiences as a Black person. And that wasn't, and that was really the most critical lesson. So why podcasting now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, well, let's, we should do we should do a little we should do a little promotion. Otherwise, the folks <laughs> in the New York Times will get very upset with you and me, and we don't want that. It's called the Run Up. It is, and it is a what kind of podcast? Yeah, it's a weekly podcast that deals with like big political ideas. And so I think um, what we're going to try to do is switch the horse race focus to really give it stakes and really give it some depth. Um, And so it's based off of the work I was doing with The Daily. So there will be reporter convos that are driving it. But rather than have one story that's reflected, we are stringing stories together to make big points. Um, I think that like one of the things I that drew me to podcasting is I think there's a greater willingness to hear out people's ideas when... okay. Actually, it relates back to what we were talking about before, right? When I was in Texas and that couple did all of those things, but also said the the print version of that story has to focus on the newsworthy actions that they did, why they voted for the person they did, what was the blah, 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 but actually missed that the, the, the reader wasn't getting a sense of that larger interaction, right? The reader wasn't getting a sense of how they sounded, how they felt, how they were interacting with me, all of which I think was adding more nuance and adding more depth to the reporting. And so when I was doing the field, when I was doing uh, 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 what the Times was doing on the Daily during the 2020 election, where I was reporting stories from out in the country for the Daily, I started to really love the idea that you heard those people and you kind of sat with them in a way that I thought was more visceral and more nuanced. And so my idea was in trying to marry those two things, that now that we're closer to an election, how can we deal with these ideas and how can we use this medium to actually challenge conventional thinking in a more direct way? I frankly think that podcasting, and what we're going to try to do, uh, does that better than the paper, just because you feel what you feel people in a different way, I think. One of those common phrases used about podcasting, which they tell you in pitches not to use it because it's so overused, is intimacy. They hear your voice, they get to know you, um, your personality. Look, people will know you better after this hour than they will have known you after reading probably, you know, a dozen or two or three dozen articles of yours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think people get to know me over time because even though mostly the show is about the other person, you reveal something of yourself. Totally. Uh, and that connection, you can't get through print or even through television. Definitely. And there were times when I found myself yearning for stories that dealt with bigger ideas and dealt with them in ways that set with people differently. And, you know, I do some TV stuff, I do print stuff, but I kept coming back to, to like, what the work I was doing on the field as the thing that was making me feel most fulfilled. And so it's a thing that we've been able to do. You know, luckily, I work at a place that does all of those things and not just one. And so, like, we were able to make it happen. But it's, 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 it's you know, 
it's funny because like, you know, on the other hand, I'm just another Brooklyn dude with a podcast. So, <laughs> you know, like, like, like maybe no, like, I didn't. It, you're, an Amer- you're an American, right? Oh, you must have a podcast. <laughs> no, exactly. It does. It does feel. I don't know how you feel about this, but it's like kind of when people are like, "Oh, what are you doing now?" I do find myself like slightly embarrassed to say it, even though I really believe in the power of it. Yeah. Well, the difference is, you have a New York Times podcast, which means <laughs> I think you have what's your budget like three billion dollars per show. <laughs> if only, if only, I'm going to take that to our next meeting. So we got three billion. <laughs> three billion. <laughs> Last question. Likelihood of a rematch between Biden and Trump, those two uh, young men in 2024, how likely? I would say it is still the most likely presidential matchup by some distance. Um, I would say Ron DeSantis certainly is going to try. I shouldn't say is going to. I would say there are certainly Republican contenders who will try. And I think... There might be Democratic contenders, too. But I would say by a margin of several degrees, Biden versus Trump part two is still our most likely 2024 matchup. What are we going to call that? The thrill, the Thrilla in Manila? Rumble yeah, yeah. in the, no, the Jungle? The, the, the Thrilla in Vanilla. Thrilla and Vanilla. All right, so, look, so, so we, this is what we did. And you should learn this. We let the podcast go on two minutes too long. And... Then we start coming up with silly rhymes <laughs> and misbehaving. We we should have quit while we were ahead about a no, minute no, and no, a half that's, ago. <laughs> people are gonna that's gonna be awesome. When people take that, we'll tell them we thought of it first. Look, and if you if you guys at the Times ever want to, you know, share some of your um your money, let us know. <laughs> when you, I get the three billion, it's it, it, it's coming three, for three you. Billion. I'll let you know. Be. Yeah. Estead Herndon, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a real treat. Thank you. I appreciate it. My conversation with Estead Herndon continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. To end the show this week, I want to reflect for a moment on this past weekend. Last Sunday, of course, was the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. It's hard to believe it's been so long. As always, it's a very sad commemoration. But tragic events can sometimes summon heroic actions. The terrorists tried to tear our country apart. Instead, they unified us. That unity has frayed in the years since, to say the least. But I think you'll agree that we need that spirit back. I mention all of this because today, September 15th, the White House is hosting the United We Stand Summit, where they will be honoring people who are uniters. As described on the White House website, uniters are working to bring their communities together across lines of racial, religious, political, and other differences to prevent acts of hate-fueled violence, promote healing where such violence has had devastating consequences, and foster unity. So I had the great honor of nominating as uniter a man named Race Bouillon. The name may sound familiar to some of you because the last chapter of my book, Doing Justice, addresses his story. 
Following the attacks on September 11th, Race, a Muslim immigrant from Bangladesh, was shot in the face by a white supremacist in Texas. When Race's attacker was sentenced to the death penalty, Race did something completely unexpected and unfathomable, something I think I could never do, and probably you couldn't either. He forgave his attacker and advocated to save him from death row. After these experiences, Race Bouillon founded an organization called World Without Hate, a nonprofit organization dedicated to combating hate and violence with love and compassion. As I mentioned in my book, it takes good people, extraordinary people, people like Race Bouillon, to cancel hate and conquer evil. Race is someone who has spent his life leading with tolerance, forgiveness, love, and humanity. And we should all try our best to follow his example. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ested Herndon. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.